Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So last week, I told you the tragic story of Tita Fontaine. If you did not listen to last week's episode, then I highly suggest that you start there. So that way you're able to fully understand the core of Rosinda's case. That episode is called Episode 3, The Tragedy of Tina Fontaine. Today, though, I am going to tell you the story of Rosenda Strong, another First Nations woman who had went missing. Because of the highly publicized tragedy of Tina Fontaine, Rosenda's case is now getting the attention that it deserves. So grab your knitting or your vice of choice. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime in Knit. So you may notice if you are watching the podcast that my setup is very janky. I always film in my closet, but you may not notice it because I have a curtain up separating my clothes from my podcast space. But I'm currently thinking about moving my podcast space back to my office. So I'm packing everything up and I'm getting things ready. And hopefully by next time you see me, I won't be in my closet and I'll be in a nice space. But if you're not watching, good for you. You will never know that I am in my closet with my cat. But if you do want to see what I look like, I'm going to put a photo up in the show notes because I just think it's funny. So who is Rosenda Strong? Growing up, Rosenda Strong was the youngest of three children in Wapato, and her family are citizens of the Confederate tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reserve in northeastern Oregon and descendants of the Yakama Nation. Rosenda is described by her family as being very loving and affectionate. She wasn't afraid to just blurt out to her older sister, Sissy Reyes, that she loved her. She was very outspoken and was willing to help a friend in need, even if it meant her taking a hit as well. Her sister, Sissy, recounts in an interview that Rosenda even bailed two friends out of jail, an expense that cost her $1,200 that she actually really needed herself. Rosenda had four children, two girls and two boys, but by 2018, she did not have custody of her children. Rosenda was a drifter at heart, and though she often stayed on her sister's couch in Wapato, Washington, it wasn't uncommon for her to leave for days on end without notice. One of these disappearances occurred in July 2018 after the death of her close friend, Frankie Dawn Stevens Levonway. Since mourning the loss of her friend Frankie, Rosenda's family family noted a change in her behavior. She was depressed and finally she left Sissy's home and did not return for days. And when she did return, she had a new car, a purchase that had the potential to make a difference in her life. On the night of October 2nd, 2018, Rosenda was staying with Sissy at her home in Wapato. That night, accompanied by a friend, Rosenda left for a night out at the Legends Casino in Toppenish. Before leaving, Rosenda looked her sister Sissy in the eyes and said, I love you. Rosenda left in her friend's car, but she never came back. During the first few days, Sissy tried not to worry about her sister. As mentioned before, Rosenda loved to drift and would disappear for days sometimes. 
But Sissy was concerned about the fact that Rosenda left her new car that she purchased parked in front of her home. Rosenda's car was her most valuable possession, and Sissy found it odd that it was just left to sit there. As more days passed, she decided to file a missing persons report with the police. She recounts her first experience with the police, and this is a quote. When I told the cops, they said, and she's quoting them, well, she's just probably partying, getting, you know, doing drugs. And Sissy's quote, and I just want to say that this response really shows the police's lack of concern and training when it comes to missing Indigenous women. It reminds me of Tina Fontaine when she was in a car that was involved in a traffic stop. And even though the police knew she was a missing minor, they let her go anyway. And after that, after they let her go, she was never seen again. The police's response in both of these cases at least at the beginning of these cases, before the women were thought to be murdered or before they were murdered, was negligent. The police did not even try to do anything until it was too late, until someone was already deceased. But eventually, in Rosenda's case, the police did eventually start to take her disappearance seriously. They flew over a house that Rosenda had been seen visiting in hopes of spotting her, but nothing was found. On November 28th, the body of Jedida Moreno was found on the Yakima Reservation where Rosenda disappeared. The police did eventually do a search and fly over at a house that Rosenda had been visiting, but nothing was ever found. On November 28th, the body of Jedida Moreno was found on the Yakima Reservation where Rosenda disappeared. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound. Coincidentally, Jedida was friends with Rosenda and her children. And because of this connection, the police thought that Jedida and Rosenda's cases could have been linked because they both disappeared in the same area at similar times and they were both friends. But no new information has come from this theory. Sissy continued her search for her sister, though, by asking Rosenda's friends if they knew of anything. Oddly, many of these friends, and if you can't see me, I am using air quotations because you'll see why in a minute, but oddly, many of these friends would not come forward or share any information. In trying to get these parties to talk, Sissy is quoted as saying, you know who you are. You're still walking the streets and my sister goes missing. And the last one she was around were her friends. And she goes on to say, you were last to see her alive. You were the last to hear her cries. You were the last to see her pain. Sissy didn't give up, though, and she was determined to find out what happened to her sister. And for me, same. I don't have a sister. I have two sisters-in-laws. And if they, this ever happens, you bet your bottom dollar I will not give up at all. I think we could all relate to Sissy here. And it's just really unfortunate because as I'm reading this case, it almost feels as if she's the one doing a lot of this work and pushing law enforcement to look into this since day one. But anyway, with the help of Rosenda's oldest daughter, Carmen Strong, who was 17 at the time, of her mother's disappearance and the rest of the Strong family, Sissy posted flyers all over the county and they tried to get the word out via social media. 
Luckily, Rosenda's family had the community on their side. She disappeared only four months before a jury found Raymond Cormier not guilty of the second-degree murder of Tina Fontaine. In the tragedy of Tina Fontaine bloomed several activist movements, events, and discourse. Even the CFS agencies that mishandled Tina's and other cases were making changes for the better. For example, they no longer put teenagers in hotel rooms whenever they don't have any other placement for them. They've just been working on making more placement. Also, since Tina's death, a volunteer group known as Drag the Red was formed. And this is a group that searches and drags, which means that they will comb through different parts of the Red River in hopes of finding any clues or any of the disappeared women in the river. So it seems as if everyone was just trying to make sure that Tina did not die in vain. And many of these newly found activist groups joined in on the search for Rosenda. In November 2018, marchers were organized in Seattle to bring into attention the fact that police reports across the U.S. were underreporting the amount of murdered and missing indigenous women. This shattering news was brought to the public's attention by the Urban Health Institute, and you will not believe the alarming statistics that they found. So now we're going to have a knitter mission. Last week, I was showing you guys my bikini bottoms. This week, I finally, finally got to where I needed to be with the bikini tops. So I have been trying to create a bikini top that is size inclusive, that that you can plug in your own numbers and get like a perfect fit. It has been such a challenge to get this bikini top going just because there's so many different ways to design a bikini, but only a few of those ways are really supportive and useful and translate well into knitting. So I finally got something. I decided to do a, a deep sweetheart neckline so it's gonna be like a la 1950s type of bikini top with an adjustable back and an adjustable uh shoulder strap like a halter strap and the bikini itself is done in stockinette but the straps are done in garter because garter is super stretchy and even though it's it's a modular design, so it's all done in one piece. The beauty of it is that we add some quote-unquote like false seams to where the straps are to add more stability. So that way it's not just pulling those knit stitches all out the way yet. It still has that beautiful seamless look that I absolutely love. I do not like the look of seams, but I love the structural support of seams. So I'm adding them in in an odd way, and it's completely optional, but I'm going to add it to the pattern. And by the time this video is up, I should have started the test knit. I know I said that last week, but I think I ripped this thing out like 10 times. But I finally have it. I finally got it. So if you're watching, I'll show you. But if you're not watching after you listen to the podcast, go check out the, the show notes. I'm going to put a photo of it in the show notes so that way you can see it. 
So if you're watching, it doesn't look like much because it's only half, it's only like one cup is completed. So hopefully by the time I put up the show notes, you'll be able to see two cups instead of one. So yes, that bikini top has been hurting my soul. I wrote in a Discord, if you're part of my Discord, awesome. If you're not part of my Discord, then what's going on? (laughs) Feel free to join the Discord. I put the link in my Instagram and it's also in the show notes. But anyway, I put on my Discord that I am currently in bikini top purgatory because I kept knitting, ripping back, knitting, ripping back. And not just ripping back because they like the design, but because I've you know, skipped a stitch in one row or dropped a stitch. And because of this yarn I'm using is super stretchy and not very forgiving and it's acrylic, when you go in to pick up that stitch, it looks wonky. It looks so wonky. So then I have to go out and rip out 10 rows just to re-knit it because I don't want one wonky stitch in a very sensitive looking area. And then everyone's eye is looking at your most like private area because there's a big like gash in the knitting it's just it was just really odd but it's all worth it in the end and I absolutely love everyone's excitement for this bikini it just makes me so happy because I've been excited about this forever and I'm glad that you guys are now too so anyway let's get on with Rosenda's story The Urban Indian Health Institute have been working on a series of projects about exposing the statistical flaws in police reports. So the thing with the Urban Indian Health Institute is that they state that around 71% of all uh, Native people are living in urban areas. And this is due to a lot of reasons like forced migration, things like that. And so that's why they are focusing on these areas, because this is where the majority of the community is living. Their first report was titled, Our Bodies, Our Stories, Sexual Violence Among Native Women in Seattle, Washington. And this report surveyed 148 Native women in Seattle, and the results were absolutely awful and abysmal and worse than what we could have ever imagined. And I'm going to quote the report here because because they say it in a way that's not as angry as I would like to say it. So there were four criteria that needed to be met to be eligible to take the survey. Participants were female, over 18 years old, residing in Seattle, and self-identified as American Indian and or Alaska Native. So what they're saying there is that the only prerequisite is that the participants were female, an adult and living in Seattle and of course American Indian or Alaska Native. That's it. They weren't asking for someone with lower income. They weren't asking for someone who was didn't have a steady home or a job. They were just literally asking anyone in the community. And I'm just going to read some of these stats to you because it is just sad and abysmal. And if you want to read the full report, it's in the show notes. I recommend that you do. It's a really easy read. They lay it out in a way that is easy to digest the information and the statistics. So 148 Native women were interviewed and 139 of them have been raped or coerced into sex at some point in their lives. 
That's a staggering. And a majority of these 94% had been victims of street harassment. And 42% had attempted suicide in their life. So I just, I just can't even. So now the Seattle stats are horrifying to put it lightly. 94% of women have been coerced or raped. So we already talked about that one, but 53% of these women lacked permanent housing. 34% drank on a weekly or daily basis after they were initially attacked. And only 8% of cases of rape victims' first attack ended in a conviction. Only 8 And 86% reported being affected by historical trauma. And that's a subject that we discussed in the last uh, episode when I talked about how Tina's father was a survivor of the Canadian Indian residential school system in which the school system committed cultural genocide. And I got more into it in that episode. But just a reminder, that was Tina's father. And she was only born in 1999. So you have to realize that that only one generation before her were victims of cultural genocide and sexual abuse and physical abuse, and many even died. So when they are saying historical trauma, it doesn't necessarily go back as far as what we would like to think. I need a break. I need to pet my cat. Now let's take a look at the second report that happened to come out around a month after Rosenda's disappearance. And this report was called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, also known as MMIWG. And this showed that the statistics were even worse because they weren't just concentrated to Seattle, but this report covered 71 cities in the U.S., so it cast a much wider net. Here are some facts, but a link to the full report will be in the show notes. It is really well done and easy to read, so I recommend you all take a peek at it. One statistic that stuck out to me that terrified me was that 5,712 cases of MMIWG were reported in 2016, but only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice database NamUs. Now, if you never heard of NamUs, it is a wonderful database that every true crime fan should look at because it has wonderful drawings and photos of missing people or missing children or Jane Doe's, things like that. And it it enlists the public's help in putting a name to these missing people. And this is a government-run database. Like, this is not just random people putting it in there. This is the government's job to update this database. And Out of 5,712 cases, so almost 6,000 cases, only 116 of those were logged. That is ridiculous. And in 2010, the Department of Justice report showed that more than half of Native women encounter sexual and domestic violence at some point in their lives. And that difference 
is scary because the national average is one in five women are victims of sexual assault. And these are just reported ones. So it's very scary to me that looking at these results, it is just easy to see that neither Tina or Rosenda stood a chance of surviving these terrible, terrible crimes. And I just would like to say that this disparity is a big deal. It is huge because it is showing that the U.S. is purposely under-reporting these, these cases. It's just scary. It's horrifying. It's, it's heartbreaking to know that it's just all being ignored. I've also found that the Urban Indian Health Institute also had to go way over budget in just trying to get this information. Their budget was $68, but they had to pay over $4,000. And even with paying that money, only 40 gave them the data that they needed. And 14 did not provide the data. And 18 are still, still, still processing and pending. That is insane. And the worst part is that the ones who provided data, there was gaps in the data. So the report states, in sum, nearly two-thirds of all agencies surveyed either did not provide data or provided partial data with significant compromises. Yikes. I just want to know what was redacted. And, you know, it's just no way that authorities didn't know about this. It's just absolutely no way. I've seen The Wire. If you haven't seen The Wire, watch The Wire. It is a wonderful, wonderful old HBO show that is about politics and and the social culture of Baltimore, Maryland, U.S. And one thing that stuck out to me about The Wire was how some officials allegedly may want to lower the statistics of their city so that way it looks better upon election season, allegedly. So it is being alleged here that these numbers have been purposefully altered for whatever reason. I don't know why. It could just be something as easy as not having great record keeping or something as sinister as trying to alter the numbers so that way it benefits another party. Another thing is the number one state with the highest number of MMIW cases is New Mexico, with the second highest being Washington, where Rosenda was from. So, yes, it just feels like no one had a chance here. It it was a losing game. It was a losing game. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you tried, it was essentially rigged for Indigenous women and girls to lose. 
So the MMIW movement began gaining momentum at the same time as Rosenda's disappearance, and the community was ready to fight for her case. In fact, Rosenda was among 20 other women who were actively missing in the Yakima area, of whom activists were desperately trying to find. Some activists even believe that at the time, there was up to 32 women missing. Even with the community on her family's side, there's no trace of Rosenda anywhere. That is until the afternoon of July 4th, 2019, when police were called to the 64,000th block of U.S. Highway 97. Two homeless men have found the remains of a woman hidden in an unplugged freezer. The next day, Sissy received a call that she had been dreading. Using dental records, the woman's remains have been positively identified as her sister. On the finding of her sister's remains, Sissy is quoted as saying, We have her back, not the way we wanted, but we can, after 275 days of looking, wandering, our baby sister, mother, aunt, cousin, friend is coming home to our mother. Now we can finally lay my sister to rest, end quote. Police have been able to classify Rosenda's death as a homicide, but the cause of death is still unknown. And though police and family know who were among the last people to see Rosenda as of of that day, there hadn't been any publicly made advancements in the case. Can you just imagine knowing who may have been involved or knowing that there are people who live amongst you who were the last to see your sister and may just have an inkling of knowing what was going on and they like nothing is done nothing is said nothing is shared about it I just cannot imagine that anguish and that frustration it's heartbreaking the thing about Rosenda's story is that I had a very hard time finding information about her as a person. I noticed that all the large mainstream media sources that I usually use had absolutely no humanizing information about Rosenda as a individual. Instead, they would just connect her case to MMIW. The only news sources that talked about how kind, given, and just how human she was, was local Yakama Nation news sources. They not only called attention to the MMIW crisis, but would tell us more about Rosenda and not just her body. Before ending this podcast, I just want to bring attention to the Yakima Herald, which is a local paper from Rosenda's area, and they have a section called vanished and they have a list of women who are currently missing or murdered and i really recommend everyone to look through those and see if you have any information or anything to contact the accommodation police department at 509-865-2933 or the fbi at 509-990-0857 recording her case number which is 18010 803 and I'm going to put all that info in the show notes as well. My name is Sophia Tally and this is True Crime in Net.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.